Good. Um, I dug up my first dissertation chapter. All 82 pages of it. <laughs> this is Two Authors, Two Books, a public humanities podcast created by Tavi Gonzalez and brought to you through the Susie Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wellesley College. Tavi is a poet and professor at Wellesley College, where he teaches courses on American queer literature and culture, British and American modernism, and the 20th century novel. He is the author of Misfit Modernism, Queer Forms of Double Exile in the 20th Century Novel, wherein he explores the concept of alienation through the works of Jean Rhys, Nella Larson, Christopher Isherwood, and Wallace Thurman. Today, in our inaugural episode, Tavi talks with Philip Sang, assistant professor at Colorado State University, where he teaches Victorian, modernist, and post-colonial literature. Philip is the author of The Obsolete Empire, Untimely Belonging in 20th Century British Literature, published in 2021 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. The work focuses on Henry James, James Joyce, Doris Lessing, and V.S. Naipaul and explores how literary reading can help us to understand the frustrated interplay of attachment, intimacy, and exclusion under empire. Okay. Um, so, Philip, uh, do you want to do uh, the icebreaker? Sure. Well, first, I just want to thank you for joining us uh, um, on this on this debut podcast um and i guess you would like to answer the proust questionnaire question which words or phrases you most overuse yes uh so um i guess the the word that i uh tend to overuse is ambiguity um i use this word a lot when i teach you know walter benjamin said that ambiguity is the law of dialectics at a standstill and i completely agree um, I'm most drawn to texts that are politically and aesthetically ambiguous. For me, they are just more interesting to think about and write about. And when I teach, I always encourage my students to wrestle with ambiguities rather than come up with clear-cut answers. Great. Uh, I, I like that Benjamin uh, quote. I'll have to remember that one. Okay. So my question for you, Tavi, is, uh, is what is your motto? Um, so my motto these days, uh, due to the fact that I've never had a root canal before, so it's, this is my first one, my motto is now, it's never so bad that it can't get any worse. So that's my kind of pessimistic motto these days. Um, I think it comes it comes with the territory of adulting, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I guess I, at this point, I'm a cautious pessimist about most things, Um but if the worst thing I have to worry about is a root canal, I think I'm in good shape, uh, especially since I'll be heavily sedated for it. Um, I, I have absolutely no tolerance for pain. Okay. So yeah. Um, so yeah, we. I, I'm very excited to uh, to have this dialogue, and we've been having this dialogue for a few years now, right? Uh, so I'm very very excited to see the fruition of these arguments in in our book form. And so I, I guess I just want to start. Um, with uh, where where do you want to start? Uh, I think the first question for us is uh, the concept of otherness and how that's a major feature of both of our books. So how do you conceptualize otherness? Uh, or is is otherness even the, the right concept, I guess? Yeah, so um, I think that otherness is a broad term um, and it's important not to generalize. My book deals with a historically specific experience of otherness. 
the experience of being inducted into a global empire, but not desired as its proper citizen. Simply put, this is the predicament of being British, but not English, of belonging to an empire that did not belong to you. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in the interplay of attachment and otherness. My book traces what I call an aesthetic of frustrated attachment in the context of imperial decline. I think it's fair to say that attachment is not a word that readily comes to mind when we're talking about empire and imperialism. But my book begins with a simple premise, namely that for people who were molded by imperial structures and institutions, they harbored a deep identification with England, regardless of their views on empire. So what does it mean to grow up in the shadow of a distant country that governs one's education and career? Perhaps more importantly, what does it mean to be attached to something to which you have no proper claim? So my book shows that this frustrated attachment has three distinct features. Uh, the first feature is that this is a, an unreciprocated attachment because the writers I look at express a constant sense of estrangement and exclusion from England. Rather than fully reclaiming an English heritage or identity, they live in the gap between an expansive Britishness and an exclusive Englishness. And the second feature is that this is an improper attachment in, in the sense that England appears as the wrong object of desire. These writers longing for England is a self-consciously misplaced attachment imbued with irony and embarrassment. And third, this is an untimely attachment. Imperial England was in decline. So the, the attachment these, these writers felt toward England was fostered through their diligent reading of English literature. So that the England they imagined was a literary construct that only exists in romantic poetry and Victorian fiction. This literary England was out of place with the reality of imperial decline. So my book shows that these troubled and, and also troubling attachments coexist with other political investments, including anti-colonial ones. In addition, I maintain that attachment is not affirmation or endorsement. For writers like Doris Lessing and V.S. Naipaul, they are never comfortable with their own attachment to England. Rather, as I said, England appears as the wrong object of desire. Yet in an unlikely way, this self-consciously misplaced attachment also yields a rich source of intellectual energy. So my book complements post-colonial post scholarship by showing that imperial attachments, which are, as I said, unreciprocated, improper, and untimely, could be as disruptive as anti-colonial projects. Uh, so, so I guess you know I can ask uh, ask, ask, ask the same question to you, Tavi. Um, you know, I think that there 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 is a really interesting connection uh, between uh, my um, my analysis of frustrated attachment uh, and your analysis of the modernist misfit. So, so how does you know this concept of otherness um, show up uh, within the idea of being a misfit? within your book. Uh, what does it mean to be a misfit in the first place? 
Yeah, um, I'm I'm very interested in the parallels here in in our mutual archives. So my my book, as you know, looks at two American and two British uh, modernists, and I think for all four of these um, of these case studies, um, they are wrestling with this in some ways a dual attachment, uh, and one attachment uh, would be to what we might call um, modernist culture itself, right? They are all very very much self consciously um, creating themselves as modernist authors in the in the vein of the literary tradition, right? Um, but they were also attached to their home culture, um, whether they they be uh, you know uh, the so called New Negro during the Harlem Renaissance, or whether they are um, you know scions of the the English novel like Isherwood, um, you know who you know very famously Somerset Maugham I believe said that Isherwood held the future of the English novel in his hands. Um, or Jean Reese, who's another um, very interesting uh, modernist and then post-colonial feminist writer. Uh, so she, in some ways, straddles a lot of these traditions, uh, which makes her, in some ways, one of the, the in some ways, the exemplary misfit of the of of the bunch. Um, and so I think you know, for at least two of them, if not all four, they have this relationship to empire. That you do that you that you talk about, um, but they also have this other attachment to modernism itself, and I think that's one distinction between our projects. Um, I think someone like uh, Nella Larson, who is this you know um, Afro-Caribbean Danish uh, hybrid, uh, saw modernism as the one key to uh, to her identity as an artist, and I think that's an enabling. Uh, identity and enabling attachment, but also fairly far afield from her home culture, so to speak, right? So how do these Black modernists in particular make modernism their own and also express their own cultural uh, anxieties and cultural attachments, right? So that's one way that I see the the resonances and also the, the, the parallels and also the distinctions between our works. So I, th I guess my understanding has less to do, obviously, with the, with the um, with the post-imperial formations that you that you talk about, um, uh, especially because uh, uh, you know, and we're talking in some ways about an American empire that is just beginning uh, when you're talking about the twenties uh, in in the twentieth century, right? And so it's it's a really interesting um, kind of a dual dual study that I, that I uh, embarked on here, uh, and and the the idea of the misfit would would organize all of these um, conflicting attachments. Uh, in a sense, using the term from the 20th century, the early 20th century, for this type of non-belonging that is a form of belonging, right? So the only belonging that these authors really shared is to modernism itself. Otherwise, they had a very vexed uh, differences among them and even within them, right? Um, and so I think for me, the misfit uh, notion uh, was in some ways an, uh, an organic uh, outgrowth of my study in, the, in these archives and how, you know, failing having more... Uh, contemporary understandings of identity. Uh, I think terms like misfit uh, or nonconformist were the terms of art for these earlier formations that were exploring the same predicament, right? How do you feel about belonging to different cultures and also feeling like you don't belong to any culture, right? Uh, in, in Wallace Thurman's novel, uh, the idea of being a total misfit um, is, is, is an indication of that intersectional predicament of his heroine, right? So, I, so I'm really interested in these um, pre-contemporary understandings of intersectionality, I guess. And I think the other piece to this is how um, how negative they're, they're, the, this structure of feeling is, that feeling like a misfit is quite a negative and, and, and um, 
and non-triumphant, right? And I think in some ways, one of the reasons I, I for example, I look at Jean Reese's earlier work and not her later work, uh, she's obviously very well known for White Sargasso Sea, which is, you know, the writing back to the empire, uh, to Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre. And that's a much, much more oppositional, anti-imperial novel, right? Whereas her earlier work like Quartet or Voyage in the Dark, I think are exploring much more of that of those those nuances that you talk about in your book. So I would I would say that Jean Reese would be would be a great chapter in in if you were to expand your book, say into a course or a seminar, right? Because she's she's absolutely, I think, uh beholden to these imperial and pre-postcolonial formations, right? Um so it's it's a very fascinating intersection, I think, um in in, in terms of the, this uh discourse. But I think one question that I had for you that's a little bit more granular and more about um, about form is I was really struck by the introduction to your book, Philip, on how you use autobiography as an entry point for the analysis of fiction. And I was wondering, um, and again, this is kind of like inside baseball, but I was really curious about this this choice that you made. It's a very uh, it's a very almost lyrical introduction and very specific in looking at autobiographical writings as an as an entry point into the study of the you know of the of the post-imperial british novel and so i'm very fascinated by that choice and whether you you were you tempted to explain that choice at any time in the book itself yeah so um well first of all i actually wrote the introduction last um and i wrote it in a style that sets it apart from uh from the rest of the book um, so I only talk about uh, memoirs and autobiographies introduction in, in the introduction and not in the rest of the book, uh, because my goal was to speak to the largest possible audience. Um, so the body chapters analyze literary texts, um, and my focus is on questions of form and aesthetics. And the target audience is is more specialized, right? My target audience for the uh, body chapters would be academic readers in, in modernist studies or in literary studies in, in, um, uh, in general. But the introduction caters to a wider audience. So I, so I wanted to write in a more accessible way. And I thought that uh, memoirs and autobiographies are a great tool uh, for, for that. You know, instead of offering a dense theoretical uh, analysis uh, of text that I'm going to read in 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 the book. Um, I I I wanted to give a more accessible, a more reader friendly um, uh, approach to 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 my topic. So so the introduction focuses on late colonial subjects um, or uh, the figure of the last colonial uh, because these subjects exemplify the particular relation to time that I that I want to explore. That is, they imagine themselves at the end of a historical line, but unable to move beyond that end. So I take stock of an inventory of feelings, such as unrequited attachment and shameful desire that are specific to the late colonial world. But these feel feelings are only a starting point for the body chapters in which I aim to show how the distinct formal features of the works in question can be attributed to geopolitically inflected desires and attachments. In other words, my goal in the book is not simply to trace an archive of feelings, but rather to show how the effective tissues 
of each writer's particular cultural formation shape their aesthetic practice. Um, so on the whole, I am less interested in biographical details than in rhetorical gestures, formal ambiguities, and stylistic experiments. Uh, so my question to you, Tavi, is uh, has has to do with um, with uh, with Isha Wood. Actually, um, you uh, you mentioned that uh, that a study of the Isha Wood archives uh, was the starting point uh, for for your book. So what did the path from Isha Wood to the final book look like? That is an excellent question. Uh, however, I don't want to let go of your introduction quite yet, Philip. Um, I think I, I obviously I can talk about Isherwood all day long, but I do want to go back to this very, very strategic choice that you made to have the introduction be grounded in in what you could say is the everyday experience, right? And and I, I also thought so it's more accessible for for a more general academic audience than the more you know subtle. Uh, understandings of modernist form that you that you look into, but I also thought it was interesting in the sense that you are drawing on the evidence of experience with these memoirs, right? And and for me, it struck me as if as if you were saying this is the truth of this uh, of this predicament because it's been written about uh, in the real lives of these writers, right? So it's not simply a fictional formation. And I think that's a really compelling argument for establishing the claims of your book itself, right? So you're you're talking about this attachment um, to to empire, and you are actually drawing on these figures who wrote about these attachments as as real life, real historical people who felt these attachments. And I think that's a very compelling way to do this, as opposed to if you had launched directly into the study of of, of narrative form in the fictional realm, where you have all of these mediations that are are really hard to to line up as evidence. Um, per se, right, uh, because of the thickness of aesthetic form and narrative form. And so I, I think it's a really canny way of establishing the parameters of your argument to give you that substance of, you know, as I said, the evidence of experience, which I think anyone can relate to, right? The first person uh, biographical has always been the evidence of experience. Uh, I'm thinking also of, of course, of abolitionist slave narratives that were predicated on very much the same formation, right? This is the truth of American enslavement this is the the uh, the witness to such, uh, you know, written by herself or written by himself, right? And that in that uh, that uh, appeal, I think, is is um, again very very much uh, historical, and has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the waves and waves of, of of these imperial formations that even predate, obviously, the twentieth century, right? If we're talking about um, you know American enslavement and also the, you know the British Empire, right? Uh, so I, I just think it's a really interesting. Um, choice that I th that I think could even be the subject of of, of a longer conversation, right? I, I, um, really wonderful, and and that's why I guess I I wish you had talked about that a, a bit more of a self consciousness to your choices, and I and of course it's really hard to do that in a in a in a in a, in a monograph where you're still you know establishing your your main claims. But I just thought it was a really interesting uh, decision uh, on your part. Um, so to turn back to your to your question about Isherwood. Um, just before this interview, I printed out my very first dissertation chapter on Isherwood. And um, so I guess Isherwood became the first uh, glimpse of what I thought um, I wanted to study as a doctoral student. Um, and it, weirdly enough, the the theme, the title, everything changed except uh, that Isherwood was still the first chapter. But to go from the first chapter to the second version of the first chapter, 
was a lot of uh, uh, a lot of storm and stress, shall we say. In fact, I almost uh, dropped out of graduate school, given uh, the storm and stress of submitting my first dissertation chapter to my committee. So that's a very, very, in some ways, a, a fairly painful episode. And I think uh, just more generally speaking, um, graduate school has a lot of peaks and valleys. And I think the first dissertation chapter can be one of those, um, you know, one of those really, you know, turning points in your in your graduate career, right? Uh, unfortunately for me, it was not a, a linear progression, but for many, it's for for many, I think it, it takes you know about a year. Whereas the other chapters, uh, you can you can once you get the hang of it, usually by the second chapter you get the hang of it, and you're pounding them out every semester. But the first one usually takes a, a whole year, and that's a, that that was the case for me. So um, the theme for my um, for my first chapter was initially going to be on uh, masochism and modernism. And so I was going to be looking at Isherwood uh, for the evidence of this um, self-flagellating uh, ethos, which again, never left. Uh, it's just that the, the, the lens of masochism became too restrictive for what I was trying to pick up on um, and also too technical and too, um, too psychological. And I think one of the things that I realized is that a lot of these authors that I'm focusing on through the lens of the misfit and misfitness are not interested in these in these uh, technical formations. In fact, they're in some ways creating their own formations through their own language and their own aesthetic choices. Uh, and there you have Isherwood's uh, notion of the nonconformist. Um, there you have, you know, Thurman's notion of the of the total misfit. Um, you have uh, Larson's notion of the unconformity. Uh, so again, these are all they all line up fairly fairly accurately um, with very similar synonyms for this situation that they're analyzing, all from very different standpoints, right? Uh, but it did it did begin as a love affair with Isherwood and his very strange uh, identifications, right? So I actually started with his book, um, My Guru and His Disciple, speaking of, of memoir. And even in the title of that book, My Guru and His Disciple, you see the sense of uh, the self-attenuation, the self-distancing, uh, uh, in 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 the Isherwood uh, persona, right? And of course, uh, Isherwood is famous for that uh, embracing of impersonality where he's always referring to himself in the third person, right? It's always Christopher this, Christopher that, um, even though it's all extremely autobiographical, whether fictional or not. Uh, so it's a very strange, again, self-othering, which I was very interested in from the very beginning of my project. Uh, so the terminology changed, but the the, the predicaments, the situations, and the attachments uh, remain the same. So I, I guess I'll I'll stop there for now. Uh, so a little bit of uh, kind of the process of of developing the the theme and and the theme as it evolved. Uh, but the the authors still uh, remaining fairly constant. Um, so I guess for me, I, I'll turn the question over to you. Uh, what was the beginning of your of your monograph as a dissertation? Was it uh, was it Naipaul? Was it Joyce? So, so my 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 dissertation began with uh, the exact four authors uh, that uh, ended up in 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 my book. Um, so the so the I guess the origin of, of of my dissertation was 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 actually a um, a parallel reading of of Henry James's The American Scene and V.S. Naipaul's The Enigma of Arrival. Uh, few people would put these two books together, but for me, they seemed to be two versions of the same book. Um, so both texts have been deemed highly problematic um, in the American scene. For example, Henry James bemoans the passing of Anglo-America, 
He laments that the America he returns to in his late years bears little resemblance to the America of his youth. This is an America which was an America that was an extension of England. Now, many of his comments seem conservative and even eccentric, but he also writes himself off. He registers his own obsolescence and renders himself absent from, um, from America's future. And that's why I describe James's late style as a style of self-effacement. And similarly, in The Enigma of Arrival, V.S. Naipaul is obsessed with an ideal English past that he has missed. He imagines himself as temporally and culturally excluded from that perfect English order. Temporally because of his belated arrival and culturally because he is a colonial, because even after decades of living in England, he is not English. Now, all of this may seem deeply problematic. No wonder so many critics have accused Naipaul of being an empire apologist. But when Naipaul imagines his exclusion from perfection, there is also an elevation in perspective a deeper understanding of his own relation to England. So in both James's and Naipaul's books, a reflection upon an obsolete English order results in a unique historical awareness, an intellectual openness, and a, and a refusal to rest content with any fixed notions of identity or community. So I, so I just wanted to say that, uh, that the obsolete uh, and the untimely may have surprising potentialities for critical and reflective thought. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've, you've noticed that, uh, that, that I'm particularly drawn to texts that are uh, ideologically ambiguous and, 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 and problematic. Um, and in fact, I think that um, in a way, both our books are a misfit within modernist studies in a field that prizes the imperative to make it new. Um, so when I was writing, when, when, when I was turning my, my dissertation into a book, I was really apprehensive about having the words obsolete and untimely in the title because I thought uh, that wouldn't fly in a field that is so invested in newness hmm. and innovation. But then I also found myself asking, who gets to make it new? Who gets to embrace newness, to welcome newness into the world? Why is it that some writers are eager to make it new while others are stuck in outmoded or discarded experiences and, and, and attachments? So I hope that, uh, that, that uh, you know, my, my, my book can speak to, uh, to the field of modernist studies in, 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 in that the obsolete uh, and the untimely uh, can, you know, can, can, can have, you know all these surprising um, affordances, and I guess uh, you know your you know your your book is is uh, is you know something of a misfit with a with a notion of making it new as well, I, and I'm particularly taken by your forceful critique of uh, of my of minoritarian overcoming. Um, so can can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting question, right? What uh, what role does the, our, our own formation as modernist scholars play in our intellectual projects? Um, and so I think for myself, I didn't necessarily think about making modernist studies new. It's for me, I think it was in, in some ways 
um, bringing modernism to the present day by looking at a pre uh, a pre contemporary moment, right, and using terms that would be uh, obsolete, uh, like misfit, right, that people haven't really um, used or thought about because we have much more precise, much more culturally appropriate terms like identity, for example, right. And I think, uh, but understanding these older uh, pre-contemporary uh, idioms, I think, are, um, is really helpful for us for understanding these authors and the world in which they lived and how they wrestled with the same issues of identity and intersectionality, more importantly, uh, that we do, but they just had a very different uh, language for those processes, right? And so I think part of it is is similar to you that I think even though these are uh, discarded or, or obsolete terms, they still hold a purchase because they're looking at the world they're trying to de describe a world that's very similar to our own, right? Um, and obviously, intersectionality was coined uh, in the in the early 1980s, but the 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 thought of intersectionality goes all the way back to the 19th century, right? Uh, and so I think that's a that's a very important lesson for us to not be so beholden to this rhetoric of the new, especially at the level of at the level of terminology, right? So I really appreciate that uh, in 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 your in your project, Philip. Um, in terms of the politics of my of my project, I think the notion of uh, it's related to what I just spoke about, which is um, we have this we, in in the wake of the social movements. Uh, I think we have this notion um, of how minoritized communities are able to access uh, the mainstream public sphere, and I think that 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 uh, integration or perhaps assimilation. Uh, has a lot of costs, and I think um, is not always automatic. And I think there's obviously, you know, you know, writers like Nai Pol have been criticized, as you say, for having this, uh, you know, this vexed relationship to the imperial order that they wish to insert themselves into. And I think for the authors that I study, they also had these uh, these questions, right? So for the two Black American authors that I study, they had real reservations about the political expectations uh, of the New Negro movement. On the on their own aspirations as artists, right? They they didn't want to forsake their their um their vision to this uh this this you know this um the need to 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 present uplifting uh archetypes right of blackness uh and you know Thurman Wallace Thurman is famous for his acerbic um anti-normative anti-respectability uh. Ethos, right? Um, very famously, when he edited the collection Fire, um, he uh, this is probably apocryphal, but he and Bruce Nugent, another you know Harlem Renaissance uh, queer author, uh, they basically took um, they flipped the coin to decide which of them would write about homosexuality and which would write about prostitution. And of course, that issue of Fire was the first and only issue because they had almost no support from the New Negro intelligentsia, precisely because they were um, they were such um, anti anti bourgeois, uh, anti black bourgeois in particular in their politics and their poetics. And so, I think that's really important to think about that sometimes we expect minorita minoritarian artists and authors to uphold these positive values in their cultural production. That in some ways uh, are seen as um, as too limiting or too narrow, and in, and in some ways they are right. Um, and so I think expecting um, these uplifting narratives, these positive role models, that kind of uh, discourse, is not something that, for example, white authors have to contend with. Um, 
So I think that's really important for me that I saw in these authors, their own political aspirations were much more vexed and much more anti-bourgeois than 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 they had a quote unquote the right to be given their standpoint and given their patronage system, right? Uh, that was that was in place to give them a platform. So in some ways, they they were uh, they were unsuccessful in trying to bridge that gap in trying to have their uh, aesthetic autonomy as well as having the the patronage system that supported them, right? That's where you have the disconnect, and that's why Thurman, uh, you know, had a lot of trouble after his first his first two novels. Especially because his second novel was a Romana Clay of the Renaissance, where again he he caricatured a lot of these um, these establishment figures, um, again biting the hand that fed him, uh, quite literally. And so I think the idea of minoritarian becoming is this aspiration to overcome uh, uh, systems interlocking systems of oppression, which in some ways is a very flat understanding of resistance. And I think what I appreciate about your book and mine is that we both are looking at these forms of resistance that are not linear, that are not so, that are not so simplistic as we like to think of it, right? I think resistance can be much a much more nuanced uh, in negotiation of these forces, uh, even by simply describing these forces, right? So, for example, Thurm to go back to Thurman again, his study of you know a, a black female subjectivity um, looks at these interlocking again intersectional. Um, uh, issues of class, of race, of gender, and of sexuality, um, and it's a it's a very it's a very dark novel. It's a very it's not an uplifting novel at all. And for that reason, it was not very well received uh, because it's it was said to perpetuate these negative stereotypes, right? And so I think these expectations that minoritarian authors are placed under are part of what they're rebelling against. They're not just rebelling against the the you know the white supremacist uh, or the imperial. Uh, supremacist order, but they're also um, rebelling or 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 negotiating the expectations within their um, their home culture or home community that expect them to be a certain way and not in other ways, right? So in, in some ways, that's a that's a double bind that that's they really struggle with. So I think our final question would be about uh, what our research means outside of modernist study. Would you like to ask that question? I would love to ask that question. What does our research mean outside of uh, modernist studies? Um, now that we've talked about how what it means or what what it might mean uh, within modernist studies. Yeah. So um, I think that um, so I want to say two things. Uh, so you know, one broader implication um, or one logical question raised by my book is is what can literature do for us? Um, in particular, uh, what is literature's uh, potential to unsettle notions of identity and community? So the writers in my book grew up reading English literature and literature became a site for identification and disidentification, attachment and detachment. And I describe the reading process as a tense interplay of intimacy and exclusion. It was intimate because they could build an English landscape in their minds with the words on the page. But they also felt excluded from that literary world because they did not actually live in England. And I think this interplay of intimacy and exclusion applies to literary reading in general because literature opens up new worlds as much as it alienates us from them. We identify with literary characters and, and other things in, in, in books, 
But literature also challenges the way we perceive uh, the world. So I, so one thing that I hope my book can do for the general uh, reader is, is to prompt a, a deeper thinking of, um, of, of, of what, what literature can, can do for us today. Um, and second, I, you know, I, I would like to think, I would like to call for more attention to, uh, to, to this idea of, of, of attachment. Um, I hope that my book uh, can call for more attention to all kinds of improper desires and, um, and unreciprocated longings um, in our uh, collective imagination today. If you think about it, attachment is a is an interesting thing because because we don't always get to choose what to be attached to. We may realize that our objects of attachment are wrong and and inappropriate. We may learn to deconstruct or demystify those objects, but it is hard to retract our attachment to those objects. Sometimes we get attached to certain writers and books simply because we read them first, because we grew up reading those, those, those books. So, so I think that examining attachments at the individual and collective levels can reveal a lot about the violence and trauma that we are subject to. We can learn to denaturalize attachments and live with them, even when they cause us pain. And I think that you know, in a world of migrants, refugees, and half-citizens, all these popular models of cosmopolitan dialogue or alternative modernities can, can no longer fully account for all the challenges we face. Instead, we need to look at those unacknowledged or illegitimate desires and attachments to understand the messy complexity of cross-cultural interactions. So Tavi, I would ask you the same uh, you know, question. Uh, you know, what what does your research mean outside of uh, of modernist studies? If you had to sum up your research and why it matters for a group of undergrads, what would you tell them? I, I like I like your response a lot. I think the idea of denaturalizing attachments is really um, is really persuasive. I, I also love the, the 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 centrality of literature in in your in your arguments. Right. Uh, I think in some ways today's readers. Uh, take these um, take these productions for granted as somehow quaint. Um, and so I think I think for me, um, my work is again looking at uh, intersectional understandings of identity that that are uh, in some ways uh, anticipating the more nuanced understandings that we work with today. Um, but I think one one way that I understand my uh, my ideological commitment is, um, so Kaji Amin has a very fabulous uh, first book himself called, um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on, uh, on Amin's book, uh, Something Attachments, Speaking of Attachments. Um, disturbing Attachments. Disturbing Attachments, thank you. Um, and I think the, the notion of de-idealization is it's a fairly influential notion from that book. Um, and I think the idea of denaturalization for you, de-idealization for Amin, I think these are... Um, young scholarly interventions in a field that has been trying very hard in the last you know 20 30 years to go beyond its very narrow eurocentric canon and so i think in some ways what i'm trying to do um, outside of modernist studies is what i'm trying to do within modernist studies which is expand modernist studies outward um and so that there's not such a such a huge um 
a huge gap between the object of our study and the and the and the contemporary readership um, of those objects, right? Um, and I, and I think in some ways because of because modernism is now you know over a century old, it's easier to historicize it, but also to make it new, in the sense that it does reflect uh, who we are today in the twenty first century. And I think it's it's a lot easier to make that case when you're making arguments about about uh, you know post imperial attachments to to empire or about intersectional understandings of identity before intersectionality was um, was really um, a, a term of art. And, and so I think those kinds of arguments that we're making are compelling to a contemporary audience uh, because they, they, they translate these modernist formations into contemporary terms, right? I think we're doing that. Um, but I also think this uh, attachment to literature itself is important to, to underscore, as you just did, uh, you know, as you know, the first chapter of my book is actually um, uh, a chapter on methodology, where I talk about the methodology that that brought me to these insights, and that what I call imminent reading, um, is looking at literature as itself, as uh, as I. A. Richard says, a way of ordering our minds, as opposed to I think a lot of a lot of scholarly work in the humanities has really, uh, for for many reasons, uh, has turned to other discourses to try to. Uh, boost uh, the profile, right? So that you have a lot of turns to obviously to um, to cognitive science. You have a lot of turns to so the sociology of literature, and all of these, uh, so, you know, all these all these methodologies that borrow from other disciplines. I think um, they're great. Uh, however, I think I'm doubling down on literature as its its own discourse of studying literature, and I think that is in itself a very modernist gesture. Uh, but I think you're also, I think, on board with that with that idea that, that that literature means a lot, and it meant a lot to these writers who were trying to produce it themselves, but who but who were also formed by it. And I think in today's um, in today's world, I think we discount literature, even though we are um, immersed in all kinds of aesthetic uh, representations, uh, whether they be literary or or not. And so I think just bringing back this attention to the aesthetic. Um, whether it's mass mediated or whether it's a niche uh, a market like modernism, I think is important. Um, and to see how it really does reflect re realities um, that, you know, you might be able to understand those realities through other structural discourses like psychology, like psychoanalysis. Um, but in some ways, there's no need to turn to them if you have, you know, I mean, people say this, right? If you have a really, really good novel, you will learn empathy. Right. And there's a reason why that is actually uh, an empirically sound uh, argument to make. And so I think um, we're both in some ways arguing for the for the importance of, of remaining attached to literature, despite this, you know, this explosion of mass mediation, primarily through image. Right. And, and so I think our attachment to the word in particular uh, may seem old fashioned, but I think also there's a certain um, a certain nuance and ambiguity to use your term that rests within narrative form um, that I think a lot of modernists exploited and that I think uh, a lot of us have 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 discounted because we are no longer dominated by the written word the way we used to be, um, and I think that's in some ways a loss, right? When we're bombarded by imagery, I think uh, language becomes all the more important. Um, precisely because it is how we understand other minds primarily. Um, there's there's something to be said for understanding another mind through writing and not through imagery, imagery right? Which is uh, inherently objectifying. So that's my little philosophical um, philosoph philosophical argument for why literature matters uh, beyond simply modernist studies and beyond simply the academy. 
Yeah, and and I'll just say that I was really inspired by your discussion of imminent reading um, in 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 your book. Uh, you know, it it reminds me of uh, of imminent critique uh, in uh, in the Frankfurt School, but but at the same time, you know, your your method of of imminent reading is, you know, it it, it resists what you call the taxonomy of of, of knowledge, um, and and you're not trying to make a critique uh, of of those books you're not trying to come up with any s sort of uh you know definitive or theoretical categories of um identity um on or knowledge uh but but you're thinking with the authors uh and 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 that is what i am really inspired by and 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 i think i'm 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 I think I, I was actually doing the same thing uh, in in my book uh, and also um, you know in 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 my own teaching. Um, I don't like to you know as you said right apply these extrinsic modes of analysis or interpretation to text. Uh, instead, I you know I want to let the text speak um, in their own words. Um, and you know I just. Um, I just finished teaching a course on uh, on Joyce's Ulysses, um, and I said to my students, uh, you know, you at at the beginning of of the semester, uh, you know, you 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 will be confused by the book. Uh, you will really struggle uh, with 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 the book. Uh, you will never master the book. You know, if 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 that was your goal, you you you. You you will never succeed, but if you let it, Ulysses can be a great teacher in in reading. It can teach you how to read, not just how to read it, but how to read anything. Um, so you know, uh, I think when when we were both in graduate school, uh, there were a lot of debates about you know reading methods, um, you know surface reading. Uh, uh, distant reading and 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 so on, but for me the question is is always how does a book want to be read? You know how does a book communicate to its 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 reader? Uh, you know I think that in in my own formation, uh, Ulysses uh, taught me how to read. Uh, Ulysses taught me how to deal with ambiguity, with multilayeredness, with with complexity and 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 all of those things, so so so, I've always been less interested in 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 methodologies of reading than in you know than 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 than, than in my own um, intellectual growth uh, as 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 a reader, and 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 I think that that entails some kind of open-mindedness that entails some kind of openness to what the authors try to say to us and 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 what the authors try to do to us um and 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 that's what i i i try to promote uh in my own research and and teaching i love that i love that yeah i mean i think it i think it's really important thank you so much for that for that compliment um and thank you so much for for joining us in this uh, inaugural issue of our podcast um two authors two books um, on that note, I think we sh I think we should probably wrap it up. Um, and and I, I guess I'll just say to 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 finish that um, 
you know, uh, reading these uh, creative authors as having their own philosophical statements to make, I think, is a way of, you know, of honoring their seriousness, right? And I think that's something that we should understand, that you don't need to, you don't need to draw upon Adorno to understand Henry James. Henry James can teach you how to, how to read Henry James, as you're saying. Uh, so thank you again, Philip. This has been uh, wonderful, and uh, we'll be in touch. I hopefully we'll see you at MLA. All right. All right. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Two Authors, Two Books, a public humanities podcast created by Tavi Gonzalez and brought to you through the Susie Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wellesley College. Join us next time for a conversation between Joe Sermatori, author of Baroque Modernity, and Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen, author of Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition.